Good morning. You may have noticed that there's no screen behind me, if you're paying attention at all. Uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, beginning tomorrow, we're going to be putting an LED wall up, replacing that center screen with that wall. We're really excited about this. Uh, a while back, um, a group came to us with uh, a great amount of generosity, said they wanted to fund a project for the church. And this was a project agreed upon. And so basically three people have paid for this project. And so none of the costs will come out of the general fund of the church. Um, I want to just explain a couple things that are going to happen here. Um, This LED screen will greatly enhance our online presence. How many of you have watched this church online? Raise your hand. I want you to look around. Because I think sometimes people don't realize how many people are watching us online. And this thing will really enhance that experience. Um, online has become the porch for our church. It's the way a lot of new people come to our church. In fact, more often than not, now when I talk to somebody that's new to us, they've been watching us online for a while. Now they're visiting us in person. It's also become the living room for a lot of folks. This is the way they do church. They, they join us Sunday mornings. Um, by the way, if you're online, hi, glad you're with us today. Um, but uh, uh, we have about 300 people a week that join us using the, uh, the uh, online met- method here. And so this will greatly enhance that. Plus, if you're here in person, the visuals will be awesome. It'll be very much immersive. Uh, it'll be a, a different kind of experience. Um, I learn visually, so I love visuals. The bigger, the better. Anybody with me on that? Sometimes I feel like we have to, have to justify some of this stuff. I have a big TV at home. The football player's head is my size. <laughs> Amen? I don't have to wear glasses to see my TV. It's that big. But I just, I, I like that immersive experience. Um, there's one other benefit, and I want to kind of explain this to all of you so you get it. Um, this area that you're sitting in is used by three different ministries during the during the average week. So Sunday mornings, we use it for, for a church like this. And that requires a certain kind of a backdrop and certain kind of visuals, right? Then tonight, Oasis will meet in here. That's our college ministry. They run anywhere from four to 500 students. It's, it's the size that you're looking at here. It's huge. They use a whole different set of visuals. And then we have Wednesday night ministries. The youth meet in here. They tear down that section. They put up Uh, games, and they sit here, they have another set of visuals. So what this whole LED screen will do was allow each one of those various ministries to really function at full capacity. They'll they'll be more immersive, they'll be more uh, geared to to, to what they're doing. It's it's just, it's really great. Years ago, we put in these chairs, some of you remember that, during the pandemic, when we couldn't sit by each other for like a year. So we put the chairs in, and we put half the chairs in here just so we could space out. Um, but what we found that, man, has made this big, huge space usable for multiple ministries now. And before, it would bother me because we had this huge space that we could only use one time a week because the pews were always in the way. And so this adds another level of flexibility to using this space, okay, this LED wall. And so I want you to know what's going on. And so you're going to see it next week. And we thought maybe we should just explain this a, a, a little bit. But man, we want to be good stewards of what God has given us. And here's my philosophy. I want this church to wear out. Amen? And we use it all over the place. What used to be the youth area is now the fourth and fifth grade area. They're huge. And so we just kind of keep growing into these different areas and praise God for space and flexibility. So at any rate, 
I'm not going to talk any more on that. That's enough on that. But, and uh, I'm excited about it, okay? Are you excited? Some of you are going, I don't know, can we be excited like that? Yes, you can. Okay, enough said. Good morning. Welcome to Grace Point. Um, welcome to all of you again who are joining us online. I want to begin by reading from John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. Here's what Jesus says here, or here's what happened, I should say. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now remember, in rabbinical times, when somebody sits down to teach, what does that mean? They're teaching with great authority, okay? The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her what? Stand before the group. Why? Because that's a posture of humility. You're not being honored, okay? You're standing before the group. And said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write in the ground with his finger. Can you imagine you got this anthem situation and what's Jesus doing? He's doodling in the dirt. Well, they kept on, uh, they, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he, and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So typically when we look at this account in the Bible, the focus is on, what was Jesus writing in the dirt, right? What's he writing there? Have have you ever studied this? That's what everybody wants to talk about. What's he writing in the dirt? And some, you know, some posh, well, he's writing down the sins of everybody. He's writing down the sins of all these accusers, you know, jealousy, greed, lust, whatever. He's writing those in the, in the dirt. And of course, the older ones being a little bit more astute start to see, oh boy. And then he says, plainly, those without sin, you, you, you go ahead and throw the stone first. And, and they begin to leave one by one because all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Sin's a great leveler of humanity because we're all sinners. The one without sin, you throw the stone first. Now, it's hard to know what Jesus was writing. We don't know what he was writing. It doesn't tell us what he was writing. We can only postulate what he was writing. I want to look at the situation from a different vantage point today. One that we can make some pretty solid conclusions about. This is an amped up situation. There's a lot of tension and a lot of anxiety here. A lot of reactivity going on here. All is not what it seems. The motives of these accusers isn't pure. They want to trap Jesus they want to, uh, uh, you know, get them in, back into a corner, at least in their minds. So there's some treachery going on, on here. And the trouble with this is they're using this poor girl caught in adultery as his pawn. And it's a life and death situation for her. Whereas these accusers, they're just trying to trap Jesus Christ. And I, I think, you know, if I were Jesus, I might have thought, what have I done to you seriously that this is how you're treating me? Really? You're trying to trap me? It's not only amped up, it's not only anxious, it's super discriminatory. It's super unfair. Who's standing before Jesus that day? A woman. Well, in my mind, I think there's two that tangle in this thing called adultery. 
Where is the man? He's just as guilty, right? Amen? Some of you women ought to be going, Amen! The man's just as guilty as the woman. It's super discriminatory. It's not about justice. It's about trapping Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, you've got a woman's life in the balance here. It's just tragic when you look at it from that vantage point. And here's the introduction of the message. Jesus modeled a calming presence in the midst of amped up, anxiety-ridden situations. That's just kind of who he was. He was this calming presence. In fact, I use this phrase when I think of Jesus Christ in these amped up situations. He was a commanding calmness. He wasn't just calm, but he was a commanding calmness. I'm struck by the parallels to our times. We live in times that are amped up. A lot of reaction going on, especially on social media. Uh, we live in a time of, of, of reactivity, if, if we're honest. It's now a tactic. If you belong to this certain group and you don't like what this individual is doing, you cancel that person. At least you try to. I always get a kick out of that. Go ahead and cancel me. I'm not on any of it anyway, so I don't really care. Certain groups of people are routinely vilified and dehumanized. It's sad. It's very similar to the situation that Jesus was facing with this woman caught in adultery. So Jesus comes into this really reactive, tense situation, and he's so calm. He's not sucked into the trap. He's not going to be manipulated. He's not going to be misled. And he interacts with this commanding calmness. And I know that at times Jesus in this ministry, he demonstrated what I would call this passionate activity. For instance, when he goes into the temple and there's all these money changers turning the, the, the temple of God into this marketplace, he, he in, his, in his frustration and in his righteous anger, overturns the tables and said, my house will be called a house of prayer, you know, not a den of thieves. And so we know he has zeal for his house. But even that action is so measured and so calculated to an outcome that he desires that people honor the house of God. They honor what it's all about. And so much of the time when you see Jesus interact with others, if you had to use a phrase, you'd have to say, he had a commanding calmness. Hey, we go into the most amped up, tense situations, and he would just bring the calmness of God into that situation. So we're in the midst of our series, Becoming Whole in a Fractured World. We're now deep into the solution side of the series. We're addressing, what do we do with a fractured world? And we know that our world's been fractured by sin. And sin is a failure to love God and to love people. And then we know this, that there are now powers and principalities at work in this fractured world. And powers and principalities are just hostile forces that act in the individual lives, institution lives, and ideologies that seek to deceive, divide, and dehumanize people. So now, so sin entered into our existence and empowers and 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 principalities are now at work fracturing the world. And then on top of all that, most people have trauma someplace in their life that has just messed up their, their self-concept and, and wounded them deeply and it causes them to have a mistaken identity of themselves and, and probably mistreat others out of that woundedness. The follower of Jesus Christ doesn't have to be wrapped up in all this anxiety and fracture that's going on. We don't have to be. There has to be this calmness in Jesus Christ 
that you and I live out that transcends the circumstances that we find ourselves in. It, it, the, the solution here is building on itself. Um, Aaron, I loved what he spoke on a couple weeks ago with this, this prayer side of our, of our lives. So frequently we joke in, in pastoral circles, if you don't want to have people show up, just call it a prayer meeting. Because we don't understand prayer. Yeah, and, and we don't understand it personally nor corporately very well. And, and uh, this contemplative prayer, this, this saying, when I go to prayer entirely differently, I'm not going with my lists and my wants. I'm going instead to hear from God and, and, and to follow uh, uh, the will of the Father. It's just so essential for us to become whole in this fractured world. And that builds into our ability to have calmness in circumstances that are tense and full of reactivity and anxiety. And then humility, I talked on that last week a little bit with you. Humility is so utterly important to becoming who God intends you to become because he graces that person who's humble. He empowers that person who is humble. He fills them with his presence and his anointing. And so humility becomes his avenue through which we then begin to be really whole people. Our ego isn't in the, in the way and we can rest in God and we can be present with God. We can be present with people because it's not about us, ourselves out of the way. And these two things, Jesus really, really lived out. Amen? I mean, think about Jesus. He modeled for us contemplative prayer. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's facing the agony of the cross. He's distraught. He's praying to God, if, any, if there's any way that this cup can be removed from me, please, Father, take it away from me. He, he, it's not just a prayer of, of, of convenience. It's a prayer of realizing what lies ahead. And he's praying, but at the end he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. That's contemplative. That's, he's abiding in the Father's will. He comes out of that thing more determined than ever to do God's will uh, for his life. So Jesus was, just, was, was a supreme example of, a, of contemplative prayer. And then we know that Jesus is humble. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. He became a servant even unto death on a cross. And so Jesus modeled for you and I perfectly contemplative prayer and, and, uh, and humility. And so that then led to, I think, his ability to have this commanding calmness. So this is our big thought for the message today. A life marked by contemplative prayer and humility should manifest itself in a calm presence. So this crowd of crazed people come to Jesus. They got stoning on their mind. There's some bloodlust going on here. They're steeped in self-righteousness. But then they run into the Prince of Peace. Jesus, by his nature, resists reactivity. He's abiding in his Father. He's got no ego needs here whatsoever. And he resists, by nature, reactivity. And he's Lord over the circumstances. He's not caught up with the anxiety of that moment. And he's humble in the midst of chaos. And he can look through everything that's going on and he can see this woman who they're accusing. And he sees her value. And he can even look at the accusers and he can see what they really need. And he can look through all that tension and anxiety and have a different vantage point, a different understanding because he could remain true to himself. And he had genuine concern for others. 
If we're to have a calm presence, friends, we have to stay true to ourselves in Christ, in that identity. We have to know who we are and be secure in that. We have to stay close to it. And we have to stay close to others, even those who maybe look like they're enemies, like they're against us. Now, I could continue to talk on this importance of this uh, commanding calmness. Uh, I'm going to do something entirely different today. I'm going to spend the whole rest of the message talking about how do we actually experience it. How do we actually step into it? Because I think it's that important that we just need to major on how to do. You know, how do we actually have this happen in our lives? Think about this with me. I have an Apple Watch. Anybody have a watch like this? Any kind of watch? About every hour, this thing will pull up this little app saying uh, mindfulness. Anybody have that app? My wife tells me I should just cancel the thing because it's quite annoying. But, but it pulls up this mindfulness moment and you're supposed to calm yourself by breathing. Right? That little thing goes big and small and you can feel it on your wrist. I, at first, it wasn't calming at all. I'm thinking, this is borderline annoying. You know? And I'm going, ah, my wrist is vibrating. Why? Oh, it's just this thing. You know what I mean? And you breathe. But even, even our fractured world knows there's something fundamentally wrong here. People, slow down and breathe. Well, breathing does have its merits. I breathe around the box every now and then. Do you know what that mean by that? Up to the top of the box. Hold my breath of the box. Out the box. And go across the box. Anybody hear that? Yeah. Some of you have. Uh, we're all just peculiar people, Becky, you, you and me and about three others, I guess. But anyway, um, you're not supposed to help you calm down. And honestly, sometimes when I'm really hyped up, I do breathe like that. It does distract me from the moment of anxiety. Uh, and so it's helpful to some degree. But we have some other things that we have in Christ that can cultivate a calm presence. And I want to talk with those uh, f- for a few minutes uh, here today. Um, one, live life with what I call discerning determination to be relying on God. Live your life with a discerning determination to be relying on God. During the Exodus, Moses, at one point in Exodus chapter 24, goes up on the mountain to receive instructions, uh, you know, on how the Israelites were going to undergo spiritual formation. And so he receives his Ten Commandments from God. He's up there for uh, 40, 40 days. It's a long time. And in this absence, the people begin to get anxious. They begin to get nervous. And they go to Aaron the priest, and they say, we don't know what's happened to this fellow Moses. I love that language because it's so dehumanizing and distancing and, you know, detaching. We don't know what's happened to this fellow, you know. I mean, where'd he go? I mean, he's not here anymore. He's been gone for 40 days. So you, Aaron, you make us some, some gods to go before us. Uh, you know, we, 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 we need something to follow here. And, um, and so Aaron, um, Aaron, rather than, than resisting that, um, he, he, he gives in to them. Um, and, and man, it's just like he lost his mind. It's like Aaron the priest lost his mind. Anybody watch Spock, uh, Star Trek? I, or I said Spock, but Star Trek, sort of. Any Trekkies in here at all? Yeah, it is the better of the two. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then you don't know what I'm talking about. Just let it go. At any rate, um, so I'm kind of a Star Trek guy from way back when. And one of the things that always kind of cracked me up was uh, Spock, the Vulcan, would do a mind melt. 
You know, if I was to know a Chad, I'd put my hand on his face and I'd go, my mind's your mind. Your mind's my mind. And they'd meld, you know, and it was all this kind of weird music going on. And if you watch the new ones like Discovery or whatever, they're still doing the mind melds, you know. I, it's like Aaron the priest had a mind meld with these people. They're all anxious. They're all bent out of shape. And they come to him and it's like, my mind's your mind. Your mind's my mind. I'll get just as anxious as you. I'll get just as nervous as you. I'll do whatever you want. He lost his mind to the people. And he says, give me your gold earrings. He takes your gold earrings and he puts them into the pot, melts them down. And he he casts uh, an idol in the shape of a calf. And they proclaim, this is now our God that led us out out of Egypt. And so God sees all this happening, right? He says to Moses, you need to get down to the people. So Moses go down to the people and he basically says to his brother Aaron, what were you thinking? I love it. What were you thinking? And Aaron says, don't be angry, my Lord. Do you notice a change of language here? Moses was, pre- was formerly this fellow. We don't know what happened. Now Aaron's saying, don't be angry, what? My Lord. And he goes, you know how prone these people are to evil? They said, make us gods to go before us. As for this fellow Moses, we don't know where he is. He's gone. So I told him, give me your gold. And I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. I don't know how it happened. Because he had a mind meld with these people that were anxious. He contributed now to the fracturing instead of being a calming presence to stop the fracturing. He became part of the fracturing process. He got all caught up in the anxiety. Listen, we need to have a discerning determination to be relying on God no matter what, no matter what we're facing. This leads to wholeness in a fractured world. Make a decision, friends, that you're going to follow Christ. Have a discerning determination to be relying upon his ways. That's what leads to wholeness. James says in James chapter 1, we should ask for God, we should ask God for wisdom, <clears throat> believing God will grace us with this virtue. And he says, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, unstable in all they do. In other words, the one who is not seeking the wisdom of God, who is not having a discerning determination to be reliant on God's ways, James says, you're going to be tossed to and fro like a wave of the sea. You're going to be unstable. You're going to be a contributing factor to the fracture of this world rather than someone who brings the wholeness of God to bear on this world. Rich Villadus in his book, Good and Beautiful and Kind, Becoming Whole in a Fractured World, said this. I love this thought. Listen to what he says. For some of us, we relate to others in such a way that we disappear into them, bearing our ideas opinions and feelings for the sake of remaining close. That's what Aaron did. He buried himself in the anxiety of the people. He lost himself and he became part of the problem instead of part of the solution. Okay, there's a second way that we can have a calm presence in the midst of uh, reactivity and anxiety. Live life understanding and using God's gifts. Live life understanding and using God's gifts. Gifting. Okay. It's a time of extreme anxiety in the history of Israel. They're facing off their arch enemy, the Philistines. And there's this, you know, kind of standoff going on <clears throat> between the two armies. And the Philistines have this renowned warrior named Goliath. And he's out there uh, giving a challenge 
Send not your best warrior. We'll do a one-on-one duel here. And all the Israelites are afraid to do that. In fact, King Saul even got to the point where he said, listen, if somebody will go out and, and, and face off this giant Goliath, I will give them wealth. I will give them my daughter marriage. And this one we really should really resonate with now. You won't have to pay taxes. I'll do a lot not to pay taxes. How about you? Taxes are ridiculous. Anyway, anyway, you follow what I'm saying, right? And so um, nobody would still do it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do it. But along comes David, the shepherd boy, right? And he's incensed by this Philistine's boastfulness. And he volunteers to face off Goliath the giant. And now here's where the, I think the whole interchange gets super interesting and super insightful. Uh, excuse me, Saul wants to help David. So he says, here, you need to use my armor. And David, being open-minded and, and submissive to his, his, his uh, king and his commander-in-chief, says, okay. So he puts on Saul's armor. I think we lose the comedy of this because it's a serious, you know, uh, serious account. But it's got to be comical. Saul's a big guy. He's a head taller than everybody else. David is a shepherd boy. He's not that big. You ever put on clothes too big for you? That's what he was doing here. This armor is way too big for him. He's probably clunking around going, I can't even move in this stuff, you know? It's like me using Mark Engen's clothes. I would be swallowed up in them, right? He, he, you guys know Mark? He's like 6'11"? What are you? 6'11". Yeah. I can't even think that tall. Anyway, you know, so you got, you got this, this stuff and it's just, he's swimming in this armor. Kudos to David. He tried. He tried to be open and, and submissive to, to his king. But he said, this isn't going to work. See, he knew how God had gifted him. He knew what his strengths were. And he said, I, I just need to get some smooth stones here. And as I killed the bear and the lion with the sling, so will the fate of this giant be. And David went out to face Goliath with his sling. And we know the story. He prevailed. Why? He knew his giftedness. He knew his identity in God. And he chose to reside closely to that identity. And he did it in such a, a great way with his king. He didn't offend Saul. He, he, he did this with humility, but with a lot of self-awareness. Becoming whole, friends, means we understand God's giftedness in our lives. And we reside in that. And we, we count on that. And we do so with humility, valuing others and their giftedness. Now hear this. Don't try to be somebody else. Be who God has made you to be. When I first started preaching, I subscribed to this uh, club called Preaching Today. And um, every week they would send me two CDs. So I'm really dating myself, okay? They sent me two CDs. And you, they, they would give a, a famous preacher preaching a message. And then you'd have a bunch of people, a panel, that would evaluate the effectiveness of that message and the strengths and the weaknesses and all that kind of stuff. And they worked on all the aspects of preaching. And um, one of the things I noticed was that young preachers especially would get these things and then they would try to just re-preach them and try to become that famous preacher. That usually didn't work real well. 
And some of the best advice I heard as a younger preacher was this. Find your own voice. Don't be somebody else. Be who God has made you to be. Understanding and using God's giftedness in your life as part of the way that you do your preaching. Just, just be yourself. Now, when I speak to a large group like this, um, I realize that I say one thing that I think I'm saying. Some of you hear something else entirely that I never said. And some of you even come up after the message and say, that was really a good point. Oh, I didn't make that point, but thank you. Some of you will come up and be offended at something I never said. Likewise, water off a duck's back a little bit here. I'm going, they're hearing what they're hearing. They're not hearing what I'm saying. This is very common in communication. So I want to say a couple things to you that are extraordinarily important right now. And I want you to hear them, okay? Just hear what I'm about to say. This is super important. When it comes to our wholeness, our transformation uh, experience, I think there are two levels that we just got to get here. One, there's this universal level. We're all supposed to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, right? Amen? And that means that virtues like love and purity and generosity, those things are becoming dominant in our lives. We're following hard after Jesus. We're being conformed to his image day by day. And there's ongoing universal transformation. And every single person in here who says, I love Jesus Christ, should be going through this process. Amen? Amen? Amen. That's one aspect of, of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Then there's this individualistic side of this thing. There's this individualistic side, okay? Where God has gifted you with certain talents and abilities. He's put you in a certain family. He's put you in a certain workplace. He's given you certain kinds of passions. He's given you certain kinds of opportunities. And that's very individual to you. And he's going to use all those things in your life for you to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. And also for you to be the fragrance of Jesus Christ to the world you find yourself in. And so there's very individualistic understanding of God's work in your life going on too. So you have this universal side, you have this very what? Specific side of transformation taking place in your life. Don't neglect one or the other. Both add up to our wholeness. And, and understanding like David did, Saul, I cannot wear your armor. This doesn't fit who I am. I have to use the sling, I have to use the skill set that God has graced me with in order to defeat this giant in my life. Do you understand your giftedness? Do you understand how God has made you and how he wants to use you? Are you operating in that? If you're not, you'll mind melt with others. You'll disappear into others. And you'll lose who you're supposed to be in Christ and you won't experience wholeness and you won't be able to bring that to those uh, around you. Now, in this message, I've been majoring, majoring on uh, a calm presence, how to have that. And I want to really get practical with you just for a couple minutes here. I call this practical practices for calmness. And it's really self-regulation. There's a list. You can make a list of 100 things here. This is examples, okay? Examples. But I thought, how, how, how can we begin to really be a calm presence in the midst of reactivity and anxiety that we find ourselves in in this culture? First one that came to my mind, this is me personally, tame the tongue. <laughs> tame the tongue. In James chapter 3, we're told that we're to control the tongue as followers of Christ. 
it can make great boasts. It can set force on fire. It can do a tremendous amount of good. It can do a tremendous amount of bad. Um, so we're supposed to speak truth, but we're supposed to do so with love. We don't have to be a loud yelling voice. We can have a, a soft, commanding calmness to our, to our demeanor. I have this little post-it note that's been on my desk. Do anybody do this? Um, you know, plug for three, I'm here, buy post-it notes. Anyway, but anyway, uh, it, 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 it says this. Be an extinguisher. Don't be an accelerant. Do you know what an accelerant is? I'm alliterating here. An accelerant is throwing gas on a fire. And I keep telling myself, in my interactions with people, God has called me to be an extinguisher, not an accelerant. I don't need to throw gas on the fire. I can become the calmness of Christ. Doesn't mean I don't speak truth. Doesn't mean I don't say hard things. But there's a demeanor difference in how I do this. So we can't control others, but we can begin with ourselves. And we can focus on how to be calm. We can tame the tongue. Oh, the second one is so important. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Now, I did a super quick count of how many times the New Testament mentions the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, um, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. I, I counted 350 times. I just started counting my concordance. How many times is this mentioned in the New Testament? And uh, it's a very, very rough estimate, okay? And so what I came to was this conclusion. There's a lot of redundancy here. We evidently are to walk by the Spirit. And I love how Galatians 5, chapter 5, verse 16 kind of sums it all up. It says this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So you and I have to begin to say, Holy Spirit, control me. Holy Spirit, fill me. Holy Spirit, lead me. Holy Spirit, guide me. Right now, I've been reading some stuff from, from um, um, Jim Dunn down in, in Oklahoma West, uh, Oklahoma University. And he's been noting how there's this big revival awakening going on in one of our, our seminaries, uh, Osbury. They're just crazy moving all the person of the Holy Spirit and, and all kinds of neat things are happening there. And he's been praying that that would go into other places too. And so do I. You know how that happens? When you and I walk by the Spirit. Amen. When we really say, Holy Spirit, fill me. Holy Spirit, do works in me. I don't know how to even pray for right now. I'm open to whatever you want to do. I want to walk by the Spirit. I don't want to walk according to the flesh. I want to be that person that's in the middle of your will, Father. And you just begin to pray that way. See, we can't control others. But we can begin with ourselves. We can focus ourselves on to have this commanding calmness. And we can walk by the Spirit. And then lastly, consider causes of anxiety and reactivity. Consider causes of anxiety and reactivity. What causes you to be reactive? What causes you to have anxiety? Why? And then pray from Psalm 139. Use these, this kind of a prayer. Search me, God, and know my heart. And test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me. And lead me into the way everlasting. Begin to just address this. You can't control others. But you can begin to have a calming present yourself. You can consider causes of anxiety and reactivity in your own life. And here's the conclusion I think we need to reach here. We gotta all be rooted in, in love. We just gotta be rooted in love. When we began this series, the first problem that we talked about was that sin fractures, and it fractures because we don't love God and we don't love others. Well, guess what the redemptive activity of Christ does? 
brings us right back to being rooted in love. In fact, I would say this. Redemption roots the follower back into the love of God. And that's supposed to be our operating system for, life, for, our, for our lives. To love God and, and to love others. That brings great wholeness to us. First John says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God and that is what we are. When your life is rooted in the love of God and love of other people, there's this calming presence that you bring to bear in whatever situation you find yourself in. And you can then become a calming presence uh, as God ordains you to be in this world. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads, please? Lord God, I want to thank you for this opportunity to share some thoughts today from your word. And I just pray, Lord, that all of us would be ones who are experiencing that transformation in you, where we're becoming new day by day, whether it be from that universal standpoint of love and purity and kindness and, and all those kinds of things, Lord, those virtues that are in contrast to, to, to the seven deadly sins of lust and greed and, and those kinds of things, Lord. I pray that we would be transformed into your likeness, Jesus. I also pray that we'd know who we are in you, Christ that we know our particular passions, our particular giftedness, Lord, and that these things would help us to stand fast in you and be whole and have a calming presence that we experience and become a calming presence that others experience, Lord. I just pray that uh, you'd grace us this way, Lord, to be in the world but not of the world, that we operate according to uh, a system of love, Lord, love of you and love of others. May you grace it to be so in our lives, Lord, and may you cause us all to just experience this calmness that's divine and supernatural. And may we then, Lord, be that presence in this fractured world. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.